We find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark again. So, open your Bible, please, to Mark 14. We'll look at verses 12 through 26 this morning. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed to the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher said, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful. And to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Imagine this morning that you are one of the 12 disciples, a young adult in your 20s, raised in a Hebrew family and a practicing Jew. For almost 1,500 years, your ancestors have been celebrating the annual feasts of unleavened bread and Passover. Now imagine you are seated at a table in the large upper room of a stranger's house in Jerusalem. You are there to celebrate the Passover again. But this time it will be the last supper that you eat with your master and friend Jesus, but the ears of your heart are dull to hearing, and the eyes of your heart are dull of sight, so you don't fully grasp what is taking place and who it is who is serving you this meal. You've grown up hearing year after year about the meaning of Passover, That God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage 
You've heard about how the Passover lamb was killed and its blood was used as paint on the doorposts of every Israelite home. You've heard about the angel of death and how he passed through Egypt but passed over every home that was covered in the blood. And so the firstborn of every Israelite was spared. You've heard about how every Egyptian home was filled with weeping and wailing over the lost. You've grown up eating the unleavened bread as a reminder of, of how your ancestors had to flee Egypt so quickly there was no time for the dough to rise. And you ate bitter herbs and drank wine as reminders of the 400 bitter years of suffering in Egypt. For as long as you can remember, eating the Passover meal has been a sacred time for your family. But this Passover is different somehow. But you don't really understand why. Without knowing it, you are about to experience Jesus' final Passover. And you're about to be served by the one who was about to fulfill every type and shadow. You're about to be served by the Passover lamb himself. The interaction of Jesus with the 12 highlight three applications for us this morning. Number one, enjoy the foresight and planning of God. In these first five verses, 12 through 16, we see the detailed planning of God. God took care of every detail just as he has done for our salvation. And I want you to see that and I want you to appreciate that. It was the first day of unleavened bread, Mark says. The feast of unleavened bread lasted seven days immediately following Passover. Both holidays commemorated the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And, and they were so cohesive that, that they, their names were synonymous. So when Mark says it is the first day of unleavened bread, he means the first of the eight days. The context makes that clear. His disciples ask him in verse 12, where should we go to prepare for Passover? I mean, that, that's the logical thing for a faithful Jew to ask. <clears throat> where are we going to eat Passover this year? And so, Jesus sends out Peter and John, according to the Gospel of Luke. Mark just says two of his disciples. Tells them to go into the city, and there he's going to find a man carrying a jar of water and they were to follow him. See, Jesus had prearranged with the owner of this house. He sovereignly knew the exact time that this man would be walking in front of his house with a pitcher of water. Something that could only be planned by the sovereign king. Now this was unusual for a Hebrew male because it was the woman's job to fetch the water. So even this is part of God's unique 
plan for this moment. So Jesus did his planning in secret. The reason he did is so that Judas would not betray him too early. There is a perfect time for every event under the sun, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, and every detail of that final week of our Savior's life is planned out by God. The time wasn't yet right for Jesus to be handed over to his enemies. See, fulfilling the Passover was indispensable to the witness of Jesus as Messiah. Verse 16 says they they found it all as Jesus had told them it would be. They went to the city. They found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And you can see how, how the sovereign plan of God is worked out through human agency. It's God's sovereign plan that this take place. And yet he's using and utilizing and employing multiple people to carry out the ultimate plan, which is the redemption of his people. And there was a lot for the disciples to get ready. One commentator describes the preparation this way. Since the first Passover had been eaten with unleavened bread, every bit of leaven must be removed from the house. Second, at 6 p.m., the lamb was slain in the temple. After it was approved by the priests, it was slain by the disciples. The blood was placed on the altar by the priests. After the carcass had been rendered, the edible portion was given to the disciples. In turn, they took the lamb to the home and roasted it over an open fire. Thirdly, certain other ingredients in addition to the lamb were secured. These included a bowl of salt water to remind them of the tears shed by Israel in Egypt and of the waters of the Red Sea crossed for deliverance. Bitter herbs such as horseradish, chicory, endive, lettuce, and whorehound were to remind them of the bitterness of the bondage of Egypt. A paste made of a mixture of apples, dates, pomegranates, and nuts was a reminder of the bricks made in the land of bondage. Finally, four cups of wine, three parts wine and two parts water were prepared. These were drunk at stages throughout the meal to recall the four promises found in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7 which are, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." Four cups of wine to remind them of the four promises of God. Today, the Jewish people have made Passover even more elaborate. David Levy, Bible teacher for Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, 
writes this, for 3,400 years, Jewish people have kept the Passover according to the commandment of God in remembrance of their deliverance from Egyptian slavery and captivity. The original Passover only had three food items, a sacrificed lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. But through the centuries, Jewish people added more food items and traditions to illustrate the pageantry of the of the Passover, and give the service more meaning. The word Seder, or order, describes the ceremonial meal of the Passover. Perhaps you have participated in a Seder meal. Uh, In our church in Wisconsin, we had someone from Friends of Israel come and, and lead our church through a Passover Seder, and I was struck by the imagery Fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. But I can also see how an unbelieving Jew could easily get caught up in in the minute details of the ceremony and miss the whole point. So it often is with religion that is filled with so many burdens and obligations. See, unless the Holy Spirit breaks through the spiritual blindness with the light of Christ, no one comes to Jesus as Messiah, Jew or Gentile. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. See, once your eyes are opened wide to the Lord Jesus and his fulfillment of all of these types and shadows, you can appreciate the foresight and the planning of God. There's a second application that we should draw from this passage, and that is this. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. See, in the visible community of Christians, not all are believers. Some are deceivers, and some are self-deceived. Some are both. And this has been the case from the beginning. Among the 12 followers of Jesus, there was a deceiver, a false disciple. His name was Judas, and Mark introduces us to him in verses 10 and 11. That Judas had already betrayed Jesus to the chief priests. And Jesus, of course, knew this, and so he kept the location of the Passover secret. But Jesus says in verse 18, think of how shocking this is for you to hear if you're one of the 12. You've heard Jesus say that he will be betrayed at some point. But now he says he will be betrayed by one of the 12 sitting right there. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray 
me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say, one after another, is it, is it I? John's gospel tells us more. John says one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that would be John, the beloved one. And he's writing this gospel so he doesn't name himself. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Of course, Jesus loved all 12 of them, even his enemy Judas. But there was a special kind of friendship that Jesus had with John. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Judas, having given his heart already over to betrayal and deception, now has his heart wide open for the devil to do what he ultimately wants to do through him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Deceiving others is, is often mingled with a certain level of self-deception. Therefore, when Jesus revealed this, the scripture says each of the disciples asked, is it I? And actually in the Greek, it's it's given in a negative uh, way. It's not I, is it, Lord? They were, each of them were looking at themselves. Not even looking at Judas. They were clueless who it would be. But they were looking into their own heart. Is it I, Lord? See, the presence of Judas among the twelve as a man who lived and, and walked with Jesus for three years is evidence of a tragic reality. And that is that among those who name the name of Christ, there are some who are not genuine. Not everyone who says they are a Christian is truly a Christian. Not everyone who says that they know Christ is truly born again, has been made alive unto God by the Holy Spirit of God. In one of Jesus' parables, he teaches us about the reality of tares living among the wheat. And that's the way it's going to be until the end of the age when the angels bring in the harvest and they sift out who's who, what's what. 
So it's possible to be very religious and yet be very far from God. I was that for the first 19 years of my life. It is possible to pretend to be alive but be spiritually dead. It is possible to deceive yourself and others. James, the half-brother of Jesus, warns us in his book, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. So James writes to to these believers who have been scattered because of suffering. He says, make sure the habit of your life is to submit the will of your heart to the word of God and to live it out. Because if you just hear the word and you don't do the word, then this is what's happening. You are deceiving yourself. And then James gives a specific example of the loveless professor who lacks genuine saving faith. He makes it clear that possessing a walk that matches your talk is part of the assurance of faith. You can can say you love God all you want, but if you don't love people, then it's all a sham. That's what Jesus or James says. It says in chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers? <laughs> what good is it? What, what benefit is it? If, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, I'll pray for you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, a dead faith can't produce any living works. Only a living faith can produce living works. That's that's his point. And so he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe in God? That's great. You've at least brought yourself up to the level of the demons who also believe in God. But what you really need, James says, is a living faith. And a living faith can only be born by God. The Holy Spirit births a living faith in us by the gospel. This was a problem in the church at Corinth. So much so that the Apostle Paul challenges them this way. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. 
Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The presence of Judas among the twelve it should be very sobering to us. And we should just understand that we need to stay so close to Jesus by staying so close to his word that it is as the Spirit of God is working out our sanctification through our obedience to the word of God that we grow and grow and grow in our assurance of faith. See, the betrayal of Jesus was necessary to fulfilling God's plan of redemption. Jesus says in 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. See, the betrayal of Jesus was predicted for a thousand years. And yet, it is carried out by someone who is fully responsible for his actions. Judas betrayed Jesus. End of story from a human viewpoint. Only through the scriptures do we understand there was a bigger plan. And Jesus himself knew that What was written had to be fulfilled. He had to be betrayed. And so uh, we see again the delicate balance of two theological truths. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. An extreme view of God's sovereignty minimizes personal responsibility and maximizes God's control to the point where a person doesn't feel they are responsible for anything. That's the practical outcome of theological error. But the flip side is true as well. Placing too much emphasis on the will of man minimizes God's sovereignty and maximizes man's pride. And that is also the outcome of theological error. The life of Judas ended in suicidal tragedy. Grievously and graphically described in the book of Acts. And he is now in hell. That is what the scriptures say. He has gone down in history as the son of destruction. Or as the King James Bible says, the son of perdition. Perdition means damnation. So Judas is the son of eternal damnation. Let us examine our hearts so that none of us is deceived. 
There's a third application we should draw from this passage, and that is engage in communion with the Passover lamb. Now, the disciples didn't know yet (laughs) the full ramifications of what they were participating in. But eventually they would, and so much so that they could then write about it in some of their letters and they could make the connection between the Passover lamb of the Old Testament and the Passover lamb that hung on the cross. So with Judas now gone, Jesus transforms the Passover by instituting something new for believers only. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant commemoration of his saving work. And the New Testament sets this pattern of participation for baptized believers in Christ. That that the gospel is preached, people are saved, then they're baptized, they're brought into the life of the church. And then they participate in this thing called communion, which is for believers only. Judas probably was baptized, but surely was not a true believer. See, God commands both. God commands both a faith, a living, saving faith in the Savior, and a public testimony of that faith. And then participation with the Lord's Supper is that beautiful reminder of all that Jesus has done for us. So here in verses 20 through 22 to 26, Jesus makes it clear that both Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are fulfilled in him. The shadow cast by the Passover meal is now replaced by the reality the heaven-sent Passover lamb. You see, Jesus is physically present, obviously, when he's looking around at the 11, and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. So clearly, the bread and the wine are not magically transformed into another substance, as I was taught in Roman Catholicism. That magically, in an invisible way, when the priest lifted up the bread and lifted up the cup and prayed over them, that magically, somehow, those elements actually became the literal body and blood of Jesus that then you ate and drank every Mass. Clearly, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. And clearly, that is blasphemous. For Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. And the whole book of Hebrews says over and over and over again that Jesus was offered once for all, never to be repeated again. So what we commemorate together in the Lord's Supper is just that. It is a commemoration. It is a remembrance
It was symbolic that Jesus offered these elements as a representation of his soon-to-be-offered sacrifice for our sin. The picture of Jesus, the Passover lamb, serving his followers is is mind-blowing in the depth of its meaning. You remember, perhaps, when we were in John 13 a while back and we saw Jesus serve the disciples by washing their feet. And now we see him serving them at Passover. And even more mind-blowing than that is what the book of Revelation describes as the marriage supper of the Lamb when Jesus will serve all believers this glorious meal. Surely that is at least part of what Jesus has in mind when he says, I'm not going to drink this cup again until my kingdom. Amazing. Why is it called the marriage supper of the lamb? Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. The New Testament holds this truth out for us to behold Jesus was crucified at the same time of day as the lamb was killed, on the same day as Passover. His sinless life and sacrificial death were offering and offering as a sacrifice in the place of sin. The blood of the lamb stood in place of the firstborn Israelite and was the seal of the covenant that God had made with his people infinitely greater. Now, the blood of Jesus stands in our place before the righteous God. It is the seal of the new covenant. The covenant that Jesus secured with his blood and that the Father made with all those who trust in his Son. That's why Peter writes in his first letter, knowing that, we, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, we are safe and saved by faith in Christ who gave himself in our place. He is the complete and final fulfillment of the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was also fulfilled by Jesus. Think about it. The seven-day feast helped the Israelites to remember their divine rescue from slavery. They purged all leaven from their houses and made daily sacrifices to the Lord. This represented their separation from the Egyptians and their consecration to the Lord. And in Christ, we are set apart by God, for God, to God. 
When we come to Jesus in repentant faith, what does he do? He thoroughly cleans our house. He cleanses us of all of our sin. He forgives all of our sin and gives us a brand new beginning. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to give us the power to live lives that are consecrated to him. See, Passover looked backward at God's deliverance and forward to the coming of Christ. The Lord's Supper looks backward at the fulfillment, the full and complete sacrifice of Jesus and looks forward to his coming again. And these are some of the truths that we glory in when we celebrate communion together.